Hey everyone, welcome to the Urban Tech Podcast. I'm John Tomey, the founder of Urban Tech and your guide to the intersection of cities and tech. This week for the Urban Tech newsletter and podcast, I got to talk with journalist and renowned urbanist, Greg Lindsay. Greg is someone who, before I started writing and talking about Urban Tech publicly, he was someone who I read and made me immensely smarter when I was working in PR and comms for a lot of tech startups and in politics around these issues. He was gracious enough to give me the time and let him embarrass him a little bit at the start, as you'll hear, and tell him thank you for everything. In the conversation, we chat about some of the biggest issues facing cities and tech globally, the rise of remote work hubs, the fleeing of major tech hubs in the U.S., like New York and San Francisco for other opportunities in places like Miami and Austin. What kinds of policies can localities create to incentivize workers and tech firms to come join them and participate in local governments and so much more. Greg is awesome. You're going to learn a lot. Before diving into the conversation, I wanted to do a quick tease on some exciting stuff coming up for Urban Tech. I've been working behind the scenes with some super smart people to figure out where the next level is for Urban Tech. And I think I finally have an idea and I'm going to be ready to start kind of sharing some details on that starting next week. So keep an eye out on the newsletter and in the podcast for some more details and more to come. And thank you so much for joining us and being a part of this awesome community. Now on to the conversation with Greg. All right, Greg, I'm super excited that I get to chat with you. I used to work on the comms. I don't want to embarrass you too much. You are someone who really helped me understand urbanism issues and challenges. So thank you for uh, taking the time to come chat with me. No, it's my pleasure to be on here. You run one of the best urban urban podcasts and newsletters around. So yeah. Yeah, I, I don't want to even take that. I'm super humbled you're saying that, but thank you. And I appreciate you've supported just the work I've done in a lot of ways. So I'd love maybe to just talk. I know you're doing a lot of work around remote work hubs. That's a big issue to a lot of readers uh, and listeners to the podcast. They're thinking about where innovation is going to go. If it's not in San Francisco, that's a big conversation. So I'd love to hear like some of your work on that area and what you're seeing. Do you think it's like a Miami diaspora and everyone's going to go there from like San Francisco and New York or like what's going on? Yeah. So much to talk about here. So a couple of ideas. So yeah, I, I read, I followed your last podcast with Bradley Tuss talking about this and I, I've been chatting with a lot of people. Like everyone else has been following the discussion about like, where is everyone to go? And so the first thing to say is the absolute numbers are not crazy. It's not like everybody's abandoned these cities. It's like upticks of three to five percentage points, which are of course massively meaningful for everything, but it's not like everything is. And second, I would point out, you know, I wrote a report that came out in 2020 on like on millennials and where they would move for new cities. And, I'm a belief of that the trends that are going to happen over the next decade are happening all at once. Definitely the whole accelerationist impulse of the pandemic is happening there. We're like, yeah, they were going to leave coastal cities for cheaper housing markets in the Sunbelt. And that's what's happened, which is, I would argue, perhaps a bad thing in the longer run, because I've also been working on stuff around climate migration. And like people are leaving places that are more resilient to climate change to go to places that are less resilient to climate change, notably Austin, which of course has had to deal with a weather disaster, yeah. a climate disaster. So, well, I live in Southern California and Obviously, we're dealing with our own climate change narrative on the West Coast that's very different. I, I love that. Totally. And then the West Coast, when I come back to it, I've had multiple conversations with this about, like, I think people ultimately will leave San Francisco, not because there's the housing issue, but also because 
any given year, there's going to be a week of wildfires where you can't brew. What does it do for raising families there and things like that? So this, that is a whole like longer term ticking time bomb with the fire season. And then, and then this is the thing about the Miami trend that I just can't get over is like all the reading, all these VCs write lengthy essays about how California is broken. And they've done this deep analysis of where to move. And then they move to Miami without ever mentioning climate change. The, the least the smart ones mentioned the taxes, but there you go. Yeah. So I've been following all of that, but I, I think there is the remote work thing is definitely going to happen in some regards. I have been talking to people involved with that, like super smart people like Mark Gilbert at Liquid Space, who for years has been building the tools to allow remote work or have multiple workspaces. And I know without giving too much away that he's hearing from all these companies now that are planning those plans. So I think that's going to happen. And to me, there's, there's a couple of, of impacts where that goes. So one, I've been talking to developers, for example, who are involved in Common, the co-living company, did this brilliant maneuver of, of putting out an RFP for people to design remote work hubs, multifamily housing with workspaces. And I think it's really interesting. David Hector runs Formwork in New Orleans, put together one of the winning submissions, partnered with the city to work on it. And yeah, it's basically, it's not just apartments with home workspaces, but bookable conference rooms in the space. He's trying to partner with a local daycare to have on-site childcare there. And I think that's really interesting because like we've unbundled the office and we're now rebundling it as part of housing. Like workspaces will continue. It's just not being provided by the employer per se, or it should be employed by the employer. So I think that's a, a really interesting trend. And then the other thing there about the larger scale, and this is a project I'm trying to initiate at New Cities is like, what happens to these sort of second and third tier cities like like Tulsa, like Bentonville, which has both of which have $10,000 bonuses if you move there? What happens to them to compete against Miami's where you've got the CEO of SoftBank, you know, is putting out $100 million for startups. They've got deals with WeWork and others. And so that's something that we're trying to put together. The classic arming the rebels. That's what I'm trying to figure out for these secondary and third tier cities that need to have their own lightweight tools to attract people. And then the other piece of that, which I think is really interesting is it's not just about like low taxes and beaches, right? Like, there's a certain breed of person that attracts. Yep. I'm following like what the Estonians are doing, like with e-residency of which I have. And like they, they launched the Nomad Visa mm -hmm. program to allow you to move there for Can you year. explain the that just a little bit, just in case some people don't know? Because I think that I love Estonia, what they're doing and they're very in innovative as but like, I don't know if everyone exactly yeah. is up to date on that. Yeah, if you haven't followed the Estonian story, I still think it's like a backwater in Europe. The, the Estonians like basically designed the world, still the world's one of the most advanced like information architectures for running a country uh, that has data sets that are separated that can be joined briefly and totally secure. So you can you all of your data is protected. You can file your taxes in five minutes, as they like to say. All this brilliant stuff. And then a few years ago, they realized in a way maybe Amazon Web Services style mm -hmm. that they could offer that architecture to non-residents of Estonia, and they created e-residency where you can form a business and bank inside Estonia, which that means inside the EU. So now you can run a business in the EU and pay your taxes in five minutes. That's proven to be really attractive to digital nomads, and the Estonians like run workshops on this and. Chiang Mai and Bali, like to that, the attracting to those tech workers. And that's what's interesting is like, that's all of us now, right? There's millions more people who are having these kinds of thoughts and conversations. And so during the summer in particular, the Estonians, they were beaten to the punch by Barbados and some others in the Caribbean, like launching these lightweight year-long nomad visas that would allow you to reside in the country, earn your income from somewhere else remotely, but spend and consume there and pay taxes there. And so so this is to me really interesting because we're seeing like this convergence of like residency, citizenship, entrepreneurship, all these things there. And the, the most interesting one I've seen are the Finns, 90-day Fin program, where they're explicitly trying to poach Silicon Valley tech workers, but they're doing it to like a place that has like cold weather. But the way they advertise is move to a city where things just work and this kind of appeal. So I think there's this whole shuffling at play. And I'll just add here, 
but the equity issues in this are like vast and extreme. Like this global war for talent. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up because that was definitely going to be like questioned on this. Like, because yeah, I think like, the VCs like, is one people and like people moving to cities and like people with a lot of money moving to exciting markets is that doesn't mean the city's going to start and take off. Yeah, but it's like this you know, this war of all against all for global talent. I just think it's interesting to close this as a discussion here. Is it's like it used to be that economic development was about throwing subsidies at companies. I do think it's interesting to see cities wake up that like economic development now is individual workers of firms and that you're like, you're fighting a war for one heart and mind at a time kind of thing. And so that's gonna be really interesting. And, and so everyone will have their own criteria of where they wanna move to. And it's gonna be up to cities to design that kind of combination of digital services and subsidies and whatever else they need to appeal to those people while addressing their problems at home, I would hope. I'm curious on that point though, and maybe you're talking to people of the city side who are trying to make this more attractive and trying to make their government, quote unquote, work better so they can make those opportunities. So what do you think a city has to do to allow that to happen? San Francisco, Northern California, and other places get beat up for not allowing innovation to happen. But like, what qualities make that attractive what? or make it work? I don't know. I know it's a very hard and broad question. There's two broadly speaking answers to that. And so Silicon Valley, California ideology to Miami nexus is like, yeah, low taxes, good weather. Let us do crypto. Mayor Suarez in Miami are doing all the crypto. You can go on Clubhouse and listen to that cast of characters talk about it. I chose the other direction personally, which is I moved two years ago to Montreal and part mm -hmm. of my moving here, which is of course, Montreal is an emerging major tech hub and AI and other areas here. And to me, what I would argue, and there's a whole body of literature on this is like, a strong social safety net that allows you to like have more of a work-life balance, a subsidized childcare here as well. That's hopefully going to become a model for Canada. The taxes are high, but but there's actually a service layer in place, and that's why like I thought the Finn response to this was really interesting because they're trying to appeal to a sort of person that like wants to have like really great schools that has really good public services that is willing to pay into that. And I'm curious about whether we'll see you know that classic notion of exit versus voice versus loyalty. Are we going to see a, a sorting of people, a further, even further sorting of people like this? So I don't know. So yeah, in the States, it's obviously like people are going to move to the Sun Belt. And I you know, I love this common misconception that Texas is a low tax state. I mean, the property taxes in Texas, mm -hmm. I understand, are pretty high. Yeah, they get you. Yeah, I'm from Texas and they get you in other Yeah, spots. exactly. It's there. But yeah, I, I don't know. I'm curious like if there's like limits to the notion of like it's all about taxation. And, uh, and most of the people leaving California aren't even claiming it's that I mean, you read the Keith Raboy and the uh, Raboys and the others, and it's all blaming the dysfunction of California governance. My response to that is like, how much loyalty did you put into it while you were there? I don't know. I think it'll be really interesting to see. Are we reaching a new age of like even less loyalty to place that like we really are just like bits bouncing around from place to place. Mm -hmm. And that'll be the really interesting thing. Like, will these people turn formerly blue cities red? Or are we going to see people leaving cities in the Northeast for Vermont and elsewhere turn rural areas blue? I think that'll be an interesting offset. And I guess as a final note on that, it'll be interesting, like what happens to college towns? If you looked at studies before the pandemic, like the college towns of America were the American ideal. They wanted like urbanity without yeah. being too big. And like the Madison's Ann Arbor. Yeah. And I, and I just like, saw the mayor of Madison was just doing, give, it was part of a dialogue with Suarez yeah. and others in this. Yeah. Like Ann Arbor, if there's one, one city in America that's positioned best over the next 20 to 30 years, it might be Ann Arbor there. You're in the Great Lakes. You're well positioned for climate stuff as well. It's only going to improve. Good research institution. Yeah, exactly. You know, I have all that federal funding there. So it'll be really interesting, even if in the short term, universities are going to get hammered by tax shortfalls and stuff. Yeah. So there you go. Ann Arbor, folks, if you can't get across the border, I'm trapped. That's in. the call. Yeah, no. And I think that Montreal point is super interesting. 
we talked when we a few weeks ago about how I used to work with Breather, and that was something that was focused on about the tech pipeline is in the Waterloo region. And like, yeah, yeah, there's a huge scene there. Yeah, you see Waterloo, but also more broadly, this touches goes beyond urban tech in a way. But I've been writing some essays for Henley and Partners, which are the folks that consult mm -hmm. on like citizenship and migration. And like, yeah, the United States had huge shortfalls in education. This the Trump year scared off a lot of international students and scared a lot of them to Canada. I'd, I'd be looking at Toronto seriously. Yeah. I think there's a reason like like Web Summit was thinking about moving there or i think maybe he is moving there once this is yeah there's something yeah i know web summit has okay. collision yeah, yeah yeah collision is the one so your question about like digital nomads and obviously i think there's a lot of companies that are doing things to service people for this lifestyle from its whether it's housing but it's also like products like i think like apparel like i think about rent the runway and clothing that's moving to a subscription as a service and everything's moving to subscription but like I think everyone's lifestyles are slowly moving in this direction, whether it's like e-commerce with you get prime and it, you can keep your whole life inside Amazon if you want to, but like every tech company is like giving you the ability to get in their ecosystem and just make it and remove friction. So I'm curious, like maybe you could speak a little bit about maybe some interesting startups that are trying to remove urban friction or friction around people who live in cities. Yeah, there's a lot of it. I always wonder about where this is going to go. I'm spending some time thinking about this. You're right though. Like when you say everything is a service, like it's not even just the tech companies, like all models feel like converging on everything as a service because of the whole pandemic K-shaped recovery where huge amounts of cash that have been consolidated and centralized. This is just as a meta trend. Like I've been following single family rentals for this. Like you're seeing homeownership start to end or that's, there's a whole big play to build more families, more family homes for rentals and build services around it the same way like we live in our tech ecosystem. But yeah, so I, I've been spending a lot of time in the prop tech space. I know Michael Beckerman at Cree Tech. I'm thinking a lot about this sort of stuff. And yeah, it's, it's been interesting seeing, I, I've spent enough time with some of the big, not to get, not to name names, but some of the big mixed use developers and home builders, and they're all building out these sort of venture tech portfolios. And yeah, I guess I see good and bad in it. The ones that frighten me on, on the bad side are, yeah, the ones where it's where prop tech meets fintech. And that's the whole notion of like, how do we basically extend debt to you in various ways? Or how do we offer you equity to buy homes? This notion yeah. of getting you even deeper into the financial ecosystem in ways that- Real estate is an asset class. And I, I like to think of urban tech as a lot more broad than just thinking about like real estate as an asset class. Cause like people live in these places, it's your home, it's how you get. So that's how I personally think about it. And I think probably, I know I've read, been reading writing for a lot. So I hope I can probably say that you think about this stuff in a little bit more uh, broad way. Totally. Yeah. Just, this is one note there. Like CBRE just put out their big report. Like they, their wildcard scenario is $27 trillion asset class of mixed use family alone. Because mm -hmm. again, like multifamily is going to absorb all this stuff. So I have it on the brain, but yeah, but I'm interested in like there's, but separate from that, I'm really interested in like the energy products. And I think that's like where the yeah. big thing is. And this is where like, prop tech meets climate tech, which has become the other great buzzword here is we're going into another big climate tech or clean tech, as they called it back in the day bubble, or I don't know, maybe not a bubble. Maybe this time is it. And, uh, and yeah, so therefore, I think it's really interesting to see stuff on, on, on microgrid management. Like I've interviewed the CEO of Sunnen, which was acquired by Shell. Mm -hmm. Like they're taking like the sort of Tesla model with power walls and, and solar panels and trying to prove that out. Um, Siemens is doing some live testing for this in Bavaria as well. And like that to me is like really powerful stuff there. Blueprint Power, which you know, came out of Urban X, which I know Robin Beaver's there who did the original Googleplex microgrid. Yeah, 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 yeah. Urban X, Micah from there wrote a guest essay. It's awesome. If anyone wants to go check it out, just not shameless plug for Urban Tech. I was going to say, yeah, I would say the, the Urban Us, Urban X stuff has a great new cohort there. I was their urbanist in residence for a while. And uh, yeah, they have some really interesting ones about you know, handling out the energy transfer.
transference and like blueprint power, for example, allowing commercial real estate buildings to trade amongst themselves. I think there's some interesting stuff there as we see more cities potentially be like New York, like putting carbon taxes on buildings and requiring that decarbonization to happen. Yeah, that's something I've been thinking about as well. And then I guess there's a final piece in there too, like how buildings themselves are going to change in the sense of there's a lot of WeWork alumni who are out there in the world now who are working on like, how do you massively scale up that building footprint? And Federico Negro at Kanoa and some others are like now actually trying to create like entire like circular streams of building footprints so that the flooring, the ceiling, everything else can be delivered as a service, decoupled, recycled, and gone from there. And like, I think there's some really interesting stuff in going about like how the physical world is going to change, particularly as like we might decommission some of these office towers in midtown Manhattan and turn them into apartments. Justin Davidson of New York Magazine just had this sort of theoretical exercise about like how we could actually start imagining that. So I don't know, these are the things I'm thinking about because like we've everyone talks about like the 15 minute city and we've been doing a whole master class on that in new cities. But I, it started to me to make a lot more sense. Like we should bring more people into the center of cities with more affordable housing if we can, where there's already services, as opposed to this ongoing trend of hightailing it out of Dodge. We'll see if that trend reverses once this is all. Yeah, I agree. And I'm probably more, that's how I see things happening, probably in agreement with you. I live in downtown LA, so I'm banking on that trend to people returning to cities and particularly people in their twenties, uh, since that's my age. And so I hope my friends come back. I agree, but I'm curious, it's like climate piece is like so interesting on it and like the climate tech part and i think it started and the way i like started learning about it, it's like the footprint of buildings and massive buildings in new york i feel like so much of the prop tech conversation starts there because that's where like the financing is and the people who have the money and that's where like the capital of real estate in america is at for the most part so i'm curious like now that the conversation shifted to where it's now we're talking about homes and making the climate footprint more. We're talking about multifamily buildings and more commercial buildings and like the whole conversation on how we can bring down the footprint of the built environment is something that just feels like it's evolved a lot over the last three years. And you know, like Tesla has probably played a role in this and like cars and just everyone's thinking about energy grids and sustainable technology. But what do you think are there any, what big events or like, what more do we need to continue to bring those footprints down? Is it like more access? Is it smarter access? Is it like just companies doing smarter, more strategic things? And just, is it just going to take time? Oh man. I don't know. A lot to begin there and smarter people than me know about, you can do the first 80%, but like the last 20% of decarbonization, of course, is the hardest. There's a couple of things in there. So one of course is just like land use, right? I I'm glad the Biden administration will be very big on EVs, but and want to reintroduce EV credits. And that's a, a good thing, but it's not the best thing because you still need to think about like the land use issues on this and, and providing that public transport. And again, like just simply trying to maintain a civilization of like, single family homes in the exurbs with you know, large format electric Hummers uh, ultimately has a second and third order effects in terms of environmental impact that just isn't going to be there. And also just as a total aside of this, the whole notion that we're all going to do remote video forever like this all has of course an impact as well in terms of how dirty the cloud is and like there's been lots of studies there mm -hmm. wind and solar more clean electricity my wife you know was the, my wife Sylvie donaldson was the editor of, of house beautiful and so we've thought a lot about homes but thinking about like how are you going to reform your homes with induction ovens and removing the natural gas out of that too there's a whole discussion to be done there about how we have to decarbonize our individual lives but the other piece of it, and this is something I get into, which I think is really interesting, is the intersection of like climate tech is like, just like the risk levels involved. We, we did an event at New Cities called Higher Ground that was interested in like climate migration. So I've been spending a lot of time with like people who are all building or thinking about black boxes for like climate models. And it's really interesting about like how that stuff feeds into the risk premiums for cities in terms of like, it affects your bond issue in terms of mm -hmm. what investments you make into 
this infrastructure. And so how, like, who are making these decisions? How can cities have visibility into it? I want to start a project where we create like lead, but for climate, where like, if you follow these principles and can be tracked openly, we know exactly what the financial impact will be. Because a lot of it is like, it's just 427, which is owned by Moody's and these other sort of services controlled by reinsurance companies. We don't actually know what the real risks are and we can't benchmark to that accordingly. So that to me is part of it. Like, do you even know what your footprint is? Do you even know what the risk is? We need to get that, we need to get that financial ecosystem synced with that. And that's going to happen under Biden because Gary Gensler is going to go to the SEC. We see Larry Fink's letters that climate risk is yep. financial risk. But like operationalizing that and then feeding that into the tech ecosystem to fund those investments, those pieces I don't think are aligned yet. And that's a huge picture that I can't see quite clearly enough, but I think it's coming into focus. I totally agree on that. And I think as someone who used to work in democratic politics, I'm super psyched that climate change and that conversation is reinvigorated in Washington and the White House. And I think I'm curious. So if you're and you're talking to like younger tech companies and stuff, and like you're looking at this opportunity of like climate tech and like a broader focus on energy and innovation in this sector. What do you think if you're a younger startup and like you want to get involved in that conversation? Like what should you do? Like how do you go like talk to Washington or maybe you talk to city leaders since they're probably a little bit easier to get in the door with? Yeah, it's a good question. I say. I'm less directly experienced with that, but I think, yeah, I think it's the city leaders, some of the state agencies like mm -hmm. CERTA and stuff like this. Obviously there's tons of challenges out there. It is tough to deal with the government side of this. I know that VCs all shy away from this and even folks like, you know, like Sean Abramson and Urban Us, who is a believer in working with governments. I remember the, the one takeaway is like, do not get caught in government decision-making cycles, like the procurement stuff. It's just so hard. So yeah, figuring out like what those early pilots are and figuring out how you can get your hooks in there into those procurement processes is like, is the key is like, and yeah, that's you know, really because that's where so much happens. Yeah. I wish I had an answer for that, but like how to like do that uh, sustainably, but that's yeah. the sort of, I think the, the critical piece of it is, can you find like ways to get into pilots and then build up from there as a pipeline? Because yeah, you're up against Titans of this with you know, years and of course, revolving doors and stuff you know, between the big infrastructure companies. And I think it's telling just as an example, this you know, one of my favorite companies that came out of urban X and shout out to them is clear road. Like clear road has is a visionary company that has great tech for mileage-based tolling. So yeah, we see the gas tax is slowly declining, which is what we use to fund US infrastructure there. Could you replace it with like digital mileage-based tolling that goes beyond just simply setting up toll roads and paying a lot of money? That's what they're trying to do. I don't think I'm telling stories out of school to say they found it a tough uphill battle because yeah, how do you get involved in the state of New York's procurement processes? I guarantee you it's not having better tech. It's probably about the size of your donation checks to Cuomo and the various entities around him. And you know, it's the same sort of deal, like trying to battle against like European tolling companies, right? Like all these sorts of things. So yeah, so this is why I don't think of it necessarily always as like government is the bad guy in a lot of stuff. It's like, it's the entrenched interests around mm -hmm. government in many ways, the ones you're trying to disrupt. No, I totally agree. I'm curious, and since you're in Montreal, like maybe you can give a little bit of perspective about how government operates a little bit differently there than the United States and just the structure of government that allows it to, and probably in my opinion, personal opinion, run a little bit more functional, particularly at the local providence and even national level. It's just like everyone works together in a lot better way. They do, although I'm an Anglophone here. I don't know how much I can answer. Yeah, this. that's true. Uh, that's true. I don't want you. I don't want you to get in trouble. Those conversations happen elsewhere in a way. But yeah. I do think it's a I mean, Mayor Plant here is very progressive in this. And I think the city has some great livability goals. And I guess New Cities is a project. I don't know if it's been announced, but we're partnering with a 
a big company and think about how artificial intelligence is used in cities and like, mm-hmm. how do you basically educate policymakers and how to use it? And Montreal has been very receptive to that. I think obviously because it's an industry they want to grow, like they want to have a government that's well-schooled in that as well. So I think that to me is, is two really interesting sides of it. But yeah, watching the province and the city grapple with each other in various ways is interesting as well. I'm an emigre here. So it's like, I live, I don't just live in the cracks between two countries, but in the cracks between a nation inside of a country next to a much larger country. It's mm-hmm. really weird. Yeah. And you're from Chicago Midwest originally? I'm originally from Illinois. So I actually, Illinois. Just, as a, okay. just as a quick aside, I went to the University of Illinois there. So I saw what it was like to be inside a great research institution yeah. when the internet was being founded. Mark Andreessen had just left mm-hmm. to go to Netscape. And Teal I was, was, no, Peter Teal was at Stanford. Yeah. Peter Teal was there. I was actually a contemporary with Max Levchin, uh, who was oh, of the founder yeah, of yeah. PayPal. And Steve Chen of YouTube was there at the time, and there was a great pipeline out of the CS. Yeah, you were in the Illinois Mafia then. I was a journalist. I missed out mm-hmm. on my fortunes then, but I wrote hey, about there, them. A lot of great journalists come out of Illinois too, and like that. There's a great media. I'm a big David Axelrod fan and Chicago media and stuff. So I, I love. So wait, I'm curious. What else are you working on? Obviously, remote cities and stuff. But I know you're like all over this like sector. It's funny. We stay involved. Obviously, commotion. You know, we're planning for more events here and following mobility, and so I've been thinking a lot about that. And it's interesting. I. I'm curious about what's going to happen with mobility. And I've become a bit disillusioned in some ways with a lot of the stuff on the focus on micromobility because it's my personal inclination to think that providing all the carrots in the world is not going to make a difference if you don't have more sufficient sticks. So I think about it in the sense of like, we've had this incredible supply and micromobility and other things. But in the meantime, over the last decade, we've seen that like SUVs took over the world. Like I, a stat I always use in my talks is SUVs were the single largest, second largest source of carbon emissions between 2010 and 2018, according to the IEA. That's more than aviation. That's more than heavy industry. Just the shift from sedans to light trucks and SUVs did that. And the pandemic has not helped at all in that regard. So I'm curious about what stronger sticks we need in terms of government policy make those shifts happen and get people out of those cars. And I, I hate even framing it that way because we need to be, because we need to offer better alternatives through micromobility and public transportation, all these sorts of things. But I'm a little pessimistic that at some point, unless you have both the carrots and sticks of policy, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. Well, and the carrots and sticks of policy, and yeah, I'm a grad student in public policy right now. So I'm taking a lot of microecon courses, which is all about using carrot and sticks and ways to get people to participate in social services or actually like do policies. So what's an example of like maybe a stick that is like used to spur maybe something like micromobility or transportation? What's an example of a carrot? <laughs> I would say the ultimate stick, you know, if you're in like the Georgia school, the Henry Georges, who believe like there should just be like land value taxes on everything. And like that would solve it from an urban tech. I would just say going back to like congestion pricing, I think would be an obvious one or mileage based pricing, which, you know, which has its problems. And if you, if you have Anthony Townsend on at some point, like there's a lot of interesting arguments made about how autonomy could screw with some of these elect, some of these models. But like, that's, that to me is an example of a stick, like actually putting in more taxation and more sort of restriction measures on this so that you don't see more untrammeled use of public good. And then an example of a carrot is like, yeah, I think, you know, obviously cities investing in mobility as a service, whatever that means to you in terms of like how extent it is and investing more heavily into public transit, free public transit, for example, I think would be a great example of a carrot in this Mm -hmm. analogy, because if you make it free in theory, you'll have a lot more usage. And like going back to Estonia, the Estonians did first in Tallinn and then across the entire country. What it did when they made public transit free is that people started taking instead of walking. So it actually didn't reduce congestion, but it increased equity. Like people in the poorest neighborhoods of the city and the country had more access to it and actually increased social mobility there. So it all comes back to what goals are you trying to achieve and what do you need to do? And so I don't know. So these are the kinds of things I'm thinking through, like what are the policy measures for that? And 
at a commotion, we obviously celebrate the supply. We celebrate all these sort of various. Yeah. Can you wait? I know. Can you just plug? It's a great organization. I've like learned a lot. So please plug it real quick. Sure. For those of you who don't know, like commotion, uh, we started as a, a event in LA and we have two events now in Los Angeles and uh, Miami's in June and Los Angeles in November. But it's also, of course, a webinar platform, media platform, and we're writing about both urban air mobility on one side, and we have a webinar coming up, or it passed since by this point, on digital twins and thinking through these policy issues. Also, uh, we have a great public policy stuff. And so I guess an example of a stick there, coming back to it, I should have thought of this. I want to plug Salita Reynolds at LADOT and her very yeah. controversial mobility data specification. Like, code is the new concrete, Salita likes to say. And there's a lot of criticism about how it's wielded, about whether there's any safeguards in place, like the ACLU and the EFF and Uber are suing her about this in federal court. You They're don't like, see them on the same sides a lot of times, I feel like, often. I'll be the first to say, as you, you and I, we both know Bradley Tusk here. So he's, he was, of course, on Uber's side as a paid consultant and then flipped to like actually support Lacuna, which is the tech company building that tool. And yeah, he would be the one to tell you that LA is on the right on this now. But I think it's sort of interesting. We're going to need to, and like, so seeing the Open Mobility Foundation form, it'll be interesting to see like how do you, how do governments build tools and governance structures and alliances to scale as quickly as the tech companies that are that are trying to like skirt around them, and learn from them as, as quickly as possible. And so what Salita has done has been like to me the most interesting and successful example of that to date. And so it'll be really interesting to see how far that goes because there are reasons to have qualms around here. Kevin Webb and others have written some very insightful essays about like how MDS is ultimately dangerous. And we've seen, of course, since the, the, since the protests and since George Floyd's killing about, yeah, we know from Amazon Ring, police and surveillance and like having more government intrusion into these tools is a very double-edged sword to say the least. Yeah, no, and I like that point. And I, I think the transportation, and maybe this is like getting back to some stuff we talked about earlier, because like we were talking about sunbelts and like warm places and like micromobility is obviously take, took off in the US a lot in Santa Monica and stuff and so something i'm thinking about a lot is like how if you are going to get people out of cars how do you get people out of cars in colder places and places that are more like climate change probably in a better position to deal with the warming climate so do you know of any like thing there i think there's a lot of ideas thrown around and i've seen there's crazy ideas on it and stuff but like how do you actually get people and you there are countries like Sweden where like people do ride bikes year round and do it and they've created infrastructure, I think, to allow it. But what do you need to do to get people out of cars in like colder places? Yeah, I was going to say, so I moved to Montreal, John, and I bought a station wagon. So like, okay. I actually okay. bought a car moving here. So, you know, so not, no not judgment. Draw, I don't have a car, so no judgment, but not to draw purely from the personal, but yeah, it's coming really handy on the negative 20 Celsius days. So there is that. It's funny you're asking this because I was thinking about this too. The reason we have a car is because... Uh, I live in a 15-minute city here in Montreal, mm -hmm. but but I have children. I need to take those children to school and to daycare. Yep. And the moment you have to do one trip outside of that, and it's a child, not because it's safety, but it's mm -hmm. children wrangling them doing this. It's, it's cultural, I guess, is my point here about doing some of this. And Being on public transportation schedule is just not as easy, probably, with so you want the freedom. And, yep. and so you give into that. That becomes the whole yep. thing. It's like a lot of these like tiny little pain points that cause you to make major life shifts. And so I think... I think a lot of it in terms of what it needs to happen in the United States is like, is a lot of it is around children and, and a lot about the fear that people have of children, the fear of the public realm of having children in it. And, and yeah, this notion, like I need to have control over my children at all times. And you can see this Tom Vanderbilt a decade ago wrote about this in his book, Traffic, about like the declining share of children who walk to school. We, there's just been, I, I think it's the culture of parenting in part around this, not to over extrapolate, but like, but my point is 
there are societies and there are cultures around this and they have cultural norms. And those norms can be as powerful of how we use technology and those tools or even more powerful than the tools themselves. And so this is something I've thought about. That goes back to, and I know, again, people have thought about this, about like, why did the Segway fail? You read the Steve Jobs quotes from back in the day when it was secret. Segway perhaps ultimately failed, I would say, for two reasons. One, no one knew where to use it. Like, we didn't have bicycle, bicycle lane infrastructure. So you didn't want it in the street. You couldn't use it in the sidewalks. It really fell into a crevice and died. And second, it became the butt of cultural jokes. Paul Blart, Mall Cop, things like that. Yeah. So to me, it's in very ways of creating the social expectations around it. And that's, of course, where Uber succeeded more than anybody else and like why it's worthy of study is more than anything else is like Uber culturally hijacked people's brains that yep. like driving and car culture was no longer important. It was like getting out of the backseat and having chauffeuring that was more interesting. How do we do that for other forms of mobility I think is really interesting. And that's where it comes back to, I think maybe when it comes to micromobility, it won't be about the shared scooter services. It's can you create these glamorous high-performance e-bikes or turn into a luxury product. Yes, e-bikes are doing really well this year. Like I have a lot of friends who are buying e-bikes now and I'm, I have a regular bike right now, but like I'm saving up to eventually get an e-bike because they're awesome. And like on it for somewhere like LA, like they're like the perfect non-car option that like you can feel safe on. But see, I hope you're there then. You don't worry about it being stolen ever because Copenhagen and Amsterdam, again, really strong social norms around it. They don't have to worry about theft. The government's placed the infrastructure. Like it's a really interesting combination of feedback loops and yeah, and it takes years for this stuff to happen too. And like that's what, and I think people get so frustrated because all the change and stuff doesn't happen fast enough. And when you're getting governments involved, change never occurs at a pace that like the people on the ground really want it to. Even like people who are working for that change probably. So I'm curious. I I don't want to take up like too much more of your time and stuff. I know you're like super busy. What didn't I ask you that I should have? Like, you're obviously an expert on all of this stuff. What what did I miss here? Oh man, what are the big questions here? Yeah, one of the big questions in life is like, yeah, it's it's uh, it's housing. It's where do we live post pandemic? It's like how do we move and get around? And yeah, and ultimately, I think it's, I think the, I think the biggest question for cities going forward is what happens to work and for whom. And this is like the fifteen minute city. Why it became like this cause celeb, in many ways, is like the fantasy that you can live in this beautiful walkable urban village, which has, of course, all sorts of like hidden equity questions behind it. Of Who comes into your high-priced residential neighborhood to deliver services to you? And how does that actually get implemented? Gated communities in the United States have certainly been like a hot topic and like how's it like I I think they're very popular in certain places and like they're very controversial for a lot of reasons. And like, that's something I think about when I think about all these issues when you're building like very early adoption and building neighborhoods and stuff that are using a lot of innovation. I get nervous about the equity stuff and who it's for and stuff. So that's, a, I love that call out. So yeah, that's a big one. And then the other one that worries me to no end is of course, and I don't know how popular this will be with your listeners, but like it's creeping surveillance state is actually the thing that bothers me the most. And, and you know, I, there was a piece that came out, City Monitor did this on dunked on like the death of the smart city and how all that rhetoric has gone away. And I saw that I retweeted it with a recent Verizon ad yeah. where they were- I'll put that in show notes, by the way, too, because I, I saw that and stuff. Like City Monitor is also a great publication and I love their thinking on all this. Yeah, Summer and Allison are doing a great job there among the team. But like Verizon's putting out this ads now, the future is facial recognition, temperature checks, like total invasive surveillance in the name of health. And when I say this as somebody who studied air travel and airports, you know, the logic of like of, of a security theater post 9-11 is now going to become health theater. And I really worry about like the trade-offs of this. I'm really glad to see that there a handful of cities have pushed back on this. Somerville, Mass, Portland, Maine, mm -hmm. others by banning facial sur surveillance, facial recognition by at least government agencies. But like, 
I really hope that we've learned enough that we're going to push back on like this creeping surveillance into the hands of the big tech stacks. What Amazon Ring has done with what they're trying to do with Sidewalk, their product on this. So I don't know. I think that's something we need to, to, to think long and hard about. At what point do we curtail this stuff and put these rights in place? And then the second part that I think we need to be thinking a lot about is going back to remote work too. Is like the, the, the biggest thing I worry about is that now that we've seen that large employers and large organizations have realized they don't need offices, are they going to realize they don't need employees? Like we've seen this trend towards having like project-based or zero hour employees where you don't have fixed schedules. Will they do this to professional knowledge workers or like you just get hired on Upwork or some of these other platforms mm -hmm. where you don't have full-time employment anymore. You're bidding against everybody else for the same kind of work. Like to what extent will we see organizations hollow themselves out? And again, how do we have protections in place? How do we empower workers to do that? Uh, I hope that we're not all just like squabbling around doing that. So I don't know, I've been thinking about like some of the dark side of this stuff because I feel like Remote work has been praised as like the future of everything, even as we acknowledge that like everybody is burned out and that the style is not actually working right now. So how, how do we return to that balance post-pandemic? And I don't know, it's, it's part of a nascent project I'm working on about thinking through what could like a neo-guild look like or like what kind of these bottom-up organizations look like where workers can band together and, and have more agency over their workflows or rely on each other if their employers are going to be permanently behind a Zoom screen. Yeah. And I'm going to definitely want to have you back when you can share more details on some of those projects, just to put in your ear now. But so where for the urban tech readers, listeners, where can people go check out your work? I know you're obviously mentioned locomotion and that place, but where else you're obviously in all the places. Yeah, well, thank you. I would say shout outs to Commotion and New Cities, of course. And then you can head over to my personal site, which is greglindsay.org, where I keep up to date on various talks and things and all the sort of stuff that I'm up on. So please head over there to stay informed. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much for the time. This is awesome. And I'll talk to you soon. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. One final ask before I go, please continue to share the Urban Tech newsletter and podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. Anyone who could benefit from learning about how tech is changing our cities more and more every day. Thanks. And I'll talk to you soon.